Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Topmark Capital. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. Visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. Let's start with Exhibit C, the last page. There's nothing new on this page, except a note on the bottom. The U.S. inventory is definitely down. You see crude was 417 million barrels in June of 22. By June of 23, it, it reached 459 million barrels. Was a significant drawdown in the last three months down to 416. If you cite down the products, they're all ladder up a little, but the decline in crude was was part of the move where oil got over $90. Crude came off last week pretty hard. If you turn to exhibit B, the crude price at the end of last week was 83 down from price in the 90s. And it turns out that Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the U.S. were negotiating the terms of a three-way agreement where Saudi Arabia would recognize Israel and the U.S. would, would provide additional defense uh, capability to Saudi Arabia, but also provide them with civilian enrichment facilities to kind of match up with the Iranians. Now, this is in a context where Saudi Arabia and Iran have exchanged ambassadors arranged by the Chinese. So the events in Israel, the the horrible stuff in Israel that happened Saturday by Hamas, you know, supported by Iran, put the Put, put all those negotiations on hold kind of indefinitely. Whether it means a higher oil price is unclear. I think the market doesn't necessarily see a higher oil price judged by trading in oil and oil securities in the days so far this week. I think what the stock market and the commodities market are thinking is that Israel will either occupy all of Gaza or do whatever they can to eliminate any vestige of the Hamas military organization in Gaza, but that there will not be some retribution against Iran. Now, one of the things that got criticized by the Republicans is freeing up that $6 billion account or series of accounts in South Korea as part of getting five hostages back. But really, in terms of financing the government of Iran, that's peanuts compared to the relaxed sanctions on moving oil 
in 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 Trump's last half of 2019 or 2020, I guess, Iranian oil production was down to like 400,000 barrels a day, hardly moving at all. And now, as you can see from Exhibit C, Iran is the better part of 3 million barrels. So the amount of money, I mean, I saw one from one news source uh, at the beginning of the Biden administration, Iran's bank resort, you know, central bank reserves for $10 billion. They're now over $70 billion. So the $6 billion is, you know, significant, I suppose, but nothing like the relaxation in Iran exports. The Biden administration wants to see lower oil prices and lower uh, gasoline prices because they're what people identify when they're complaining about inflation. So part of the deal with Saudi Arabia, you can see in Exhibit C, about 4 million barrels is being held back. More than half of that is Saudi. And some part of that 2 million barrels, 2 plus million barrels that Saudi Arabia is holding off the market, we're going to be put out on the market. So as part of the three-way deal, uh, the Biden administration was going to take credit for an extension of Trump got started with what they call the Abraham Accords, you know, having having the Emirates and uh, Bahrain recognized Israel. Now Saudi Arabia would recognize Israel. But the other thing is they're hoping to get the price of oil down and the price of gasoline down to help them in their election next November. I think that what the oil market is thinking now, because you haven't had that much of a uplift in oil, is that this will be localized. Uh, Israel's calling up 300,000 reservists. They may not go into a complete occupation of Gaza, but they're going to make sure that Hamas is not able to do anything like this again. I doubt if the U.S. or Israel is going to interfere with Iran oil exports. And I doubt if the Saudi government, the royal family, can put this thing, recognize Israel, back on track, given widespread support amongst Saudi population and other Gulf Arab populations for the Palestinians. So I think it's horrific what happened, and, and it's certainly going to be in the headlines. But in terms of its impact on the oil market or commodities markets or capital markets, Unless something else happens, I think it's pretty pretty light. Now, Exhibit A is still the problem is that spending away from the automatic stuff like Social Security extending down through interest and defense, it just has to go back to what it was pre-COVID, $910 billion, not a billion four or trillion four. Getting that done is next to impossible politically, but that is one of the main issues in the Republican House. When McCarthy won the speakership after 15 votes, a number of the conservative Republicans, including Jim Jordan, who's, you know, I guess gotten outvoted by Scalise, we'll see what happens, thought they had a commitment where the 12 expenditure bills that were put out by the House would take it all the way back to $910 billion. The Biden administration, as part of the debt ceiling, thought that they had an agreement with the uh, Speaker and the Republicans in the House to 
basically hold that number flat or down slightly. The Democrats, led by the Biden administration, were, were saying Kevin McCarthy violated his commitment, and the conservative Republicans were saying Kevin McCarthy, and he was caught in the middle. I think he's probably happy to give up being speaker to see how the Republicans do with a uh, new speaker. There's no question that the the capital markets in the U.S. or U.S. Treasuries are going to have to bear the burden, not only of financing that trillion and a half dollars a year, but also coping with the Fed balance sheet being reduced, what's called quantitative tightening or QT. If the balance sheet of the Fed's coming down by $100 billion a month, which is what they're trying to do, that's a billion two. And if the deficit is a is a trillion, not a, a trillion two, if the deficit's a trillion four, that's like somewhere around 2.6, 2.7. A good question is, what real rate of interest is necessary to have the capital markets absorb or, or take up that amount of paper? I believe that it is a 2.5% real rate, approximately. So if the inflation rate doesn't get down to 2, it gets down to 25 2.5 2 plus 2.5 is 5% on long-term treasuries. If the inflation rate only gets to 3%, it's 5.5%. Now, why 2.5% real rate when for all the period from the, the great debacle in, in 08, uh, real rates have been negative? Well, two things have happened. First of all, uh, you know, then there was quantitative easing. Now there's quantitative tightening. And then, you know, there seems to be no way for the federal government to curtail spending. This seems politically impossible. So that has to be recognized, I think, in the real rate of interest. Also, if you take 20 years, 30 years, 40 years prior to 08, when the Fed decided to experiment with quantitative easing to try to prevent deflation, you know, the real interest rate has been one and a half to two percent. I just think it's going to be somewhat higher just because of the weight of all the paper that needs to be uh, sold. The concern about a real interest rate of two and a half percent is what does it do to stock valuations? If you start flipping from page 20 forward, you find very few things at values, free cash flow, that, that it, you know, looks like it should be competitive with your two and a half plus, say, 3% inflation rate. That's five and a half percent. I mean, a lot of these companies are very good companies. Look at page 16, a McDonald's, a Starbucks, a Chipotle. They're all trading at a 3% free cash yield. Is that sustainable? Now, the argument for it is that they're growing five, six, seven, eight, ten percent. So three percent plus the growth rate handily beats, you know, five and a half on ten years treasuries. But if you look at the interim reports here, you know, the growth is pretty skinny. We clearly have a pretty strong economy. Look at the jobs number reported last Friday, but that doesn't necessarily translate into growth. And the pages I updated last weekend 
were page one and two. Now here are the, you know, here on page one, if you look at the increase in the S&P year to date, and, you know, the S&P all indexes gave up quite a lot in the month of September, but, you know, seven stocks kind of accounted for most of the increase. Three of the seven stocks are on page one, Apple, Alphabet, and Tesla. And they're all trading. I mean, Apple and Alphabet are trading at about a 3% free cash yield. Tesla's trading at about a 1% free cash yield. So if the measure is not just growth in sales, but growth in free cash flow, and you go down to the interim numbers, Apple for the nine months to June, their free cash flow was now $9 billion. Now, Alphabet had a pretty good first six months. I think a lot of cutting of costs, which uh, you know, a lot of the tech companies found that they just had way too many people working there. They were up six. Tesla, which has been reducing list prices right through this period, was off by about a billion dollars. So, I mean, it, it, you do have pretty good sales growth at Tesla. You have some revenue growth at Alphabet, but you don't have any free cash flow growth at uh, Apple, and, and you actually have some some decline in sales. Does that mean that that we'll see Apple for you know less than thirty two times cash flow, or Alphabet for less than thirty two times cash flow, or Tesla for less than hundred times cash flow? Maybe, but in a environment where Free cash flow is very important, difficult capital market. So you're better off being a stock, buying stock back and paying dividends than you are trying to issue equity. I suspect that despite there being a 2.5% real interest rate and translated plus inflation into 5.5%, I'm not sure that that translates into lower valuations for these three companies or we turn the page to page two, and we pick up Microsoft. So you have four out of the uh, top seven. Once again, Microsoft has some free cash flow growth, but it is 40 times or two and a half percent free cash yield. So it, is it feasible that these will improve from here? Maybe, but I would think what's more likely is that they continue along not growing a whole heck of a lot, but also not getting not getting discounted. We turn to page three, we pick up NVIDIA, so now we're five out of the seven. NVIDIA is totally different situation. I mean, NVIDIA is going to come out of this period of time when everyone needs their GPUs to run large language models. NVIDIA is going to come out of it with revenue three times what they went into it with. So it's to say that they're 100 times free cash flow, who knows? I mean, this may be a, a conservative view of free cash flow and uh, revenues. Now, having having covered those five companies, Jason, what am I missing? Where is the potential revaluation of those five companies, do you think? Or do you think it, they just cruise along in an economy where we're not really in a recession and where interest rates kind of level out here with some improvement in the Fed funds rate, you know, some decline in the Fed funds rate, but with the base rate, the 10-year rate kind of hanging in there at five or five and a half percent. When we went through 
not last year, but the year before, increased interest rates and and these tech companies all crashed. But how how do you, I, I just don't see that history repeating itself. How does it look to you, Jason? Right. I don't see that history repeating either. I think everyone's come to terms with higher for longer. And then the valuations of these seven companies have, have settled here. I guess I have a, a less rosy picture going forward in the near term future. But, you know, in that case, maybe maybe the valuations get, you know, thrown out with everything else. But I tend to agree. I mean, they're, they're, the growth is slowing on, on all of them except NVIDIA and you know, three percent free cash flow yield isn't isn't bad. So it's you know it's it's reasonable to think they kind of muddle along here. All right. We have a trial going on of Alphabet. One of the newsworthy items in the trial is how much money does Alphabet pay Apple to be the default setting for search? And the largest number I've seen is somewhere in excess of ten billion, but some significant part of that 120 billion of operating cost is Alphabet paying people like Apple for channeling search customers to them. I mean, is it conceivable that that number between Alphabet and Apple is not just substantially more than 10, but maybe two times 10 or 20 or something? Or how, how does that look to you, Mike? Yeah, I think it's it's been rumored to be 20. And given the fact that Again, you got to take it with a grain of salt, but Satya Nadella testified that they would be willing to spend 15. So if somehow they could justify spending 15, I could imagine Google could probably spend more than 20. Right. On desktop search, where I don't believe anyone pays for the, the rights to be the, the default browser, um, everyone chooses Chrome and Google search. So maybe maybe Alphabet looks at it as we're going to win the market no matter what because we have a better product. Right. Right. You, in, in the trial, do you think it's feasible that, that Alphabet will be ordered or have to agree, you know, an out-of-court settlement to not or not, not continue to pay to whatever amount it is? somewhere between 10 and 20 billion to Apple. And if so, that that services income, which when people look at Apple and they say, well, you have the iPhones, but you know, you look at the growth in service income, it'd be a pretty, pretty, pretty big thing on Apple's service income to uh, lose those payments. Yeah. The argument is a, it's a stretch, right? Is it they're, they're, they're trying to argue that, aggregation is equivalent to monopoly. What they could do, and maybe a compromise that could be reached, is that instead of having this payment be kind of a deal done behind closed doors, that it should be more public. And that would probably placate a lot of people. And now that the cat's out of the bag, I don't know that Apple really cares anymore either. So as long as they could structure an auction where they essentially get the same amount of money, then maybe it doesn't matter. If that happens, it, then you'll see, everyone looked at the services business of Apple as that's the big growth driver. And you'll see that maybe that was a, the actual services part of it was a much healthier business than, than people even imagine. Right. 
Jason, uh, we're we're only got a couple minutes left. Do you think that Apple would be motivated to develop their own search business or or present a uh, something like Microsoft Out Copilot? As you don't need search, you have this large language model access to this large language model. They'll they'll and you may not even have to type it in. You can just speak it to uh, Siri, and and they'll come up with the search results. Does Apple management from the top would they see some logic to trying to use this as an opportunity to compete with compete with Google? I'm sure. I'm fully expecting they'll come out with a new version of Siri that's much more useful, much much more intelligent. And that's probably the angle they're taking is to replace search with just Q&A through any form with, you know, with an interactive chatbot. I think the payment to, from Google has always been just enough to disinterest Apple from proceeding with a plan to do their own thing. Right. Let me ask you another closing question. I just saw this from some news feed that the large language models as compared to the way Google runs search can be much more expensive in terms of each inquiry to run a, to run that through a language model as compared to the Google system. Could you write the software or write, write the language model in a way where it, it wouldn't be more expensive than the way Google does search now? Ooh, that, would be, that would be a really difficult thing to do. They're fundamentally different, and, and Google's had 20 years of optimizing how they present search results. And they do a lot of caching, which, which means they, you know, if, if you and I both search the same thing, a lot of the results might be the same other than like location-specific results. So uh, they've gotten their cost per query down pretty negligible. It's going to take a, a lot of years to reach that same level of parity using, using language models. And just inherently, they're, they're a lot more compute intensive. Search, the internet search has to crawl the entire internet and kind of catalog what's out there. The language models have to do the same. They're constantly learning on what's new. And then on top of that, the processing the inference of the language models kind of compute expensive as well, where search is, is more of a, a lookup function. They do a lot of really smart things to make the results come back very quickly, but they're really just, just lookups. So it, it's going to be, they'll be hard pressed to make the costs the same. And then they have to figure out how to monetize it <laughs> as far as advertising. Right. Right. Good. Well, thanks for everyone's attention and uh, be well and stay healthy. We'll be on next Wednesday. And if you have questions or things that you think Mike and Jason and I are missing, email them in and uh, we'll certainly pay some attention to the emails that come in. Everyone take care. Be well and be healthy. Bye-bye. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. 
Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. Thank you.